All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. That was quite a smooth little video intro there. Quite proud of that one. Uh, so... If you haven't heard VOX World before, if you're new here, we are the podcast and the show that brings you the brightest minds in conversational AI and voice technologies, picks their brains about how they do what they do so that you can you do what you do better. Essentially, if you're working on anything to do with voice assistants, chatbots, anything to do with conversational automation, conversational marketing, conversational commerce, conversational customer service, anything to do with using natural language technologies, we are the place that will teach you and help you do that to great success. Uh, if you joined us yesterday, you would have heard Scott Stevenson, CEO of DeepGram, talk about DeepGram and the automatic speech recognition technology that they have. And I'm delighted to uh, announce that and present uh, DeepGram as the presenting sponsor of VUX World for this episode and for the uh, foreseeable future uh, and the episodes to come. We've got, we're doubling up, I think, quite a lot now. Uh, we, we've got two episodes a week coming up over the next few weeks. Uh, so looking forward to that. If you're not familiar with DeepGram, if you didn't hear the episode of the podcast with uh, Scott Stevenson, uh, the last one, DeepGram is one of the leading uh, automatic transcription and speech-to-text companies, speech-to-text companies out there. I mean, you know, you'll probably think of the the big companies, the big cloud providers, uh, but DeepGram. I mean, if you again, if you heard the conversation we had with Scott Stevenson yesterday, uh, DeepGram are literally pushing the boundaries of what automatic speech technology can do. Companies all over the world are using DeepGram not only for the uh, to to utilize it as a tool to help their business, but some businesses are being built on top. Of it using the API to actually build companies around it. Um, the processing it, it uses uh, deep learning essentially, which which very I think no other uh, company does. And the speed, the return speed, is absolutely lightning fast, milliseconds. And if you're building voice assistants, then you'll know that any delay in a response back from a voice assistant starts to break down the whole experience. It starts to stop feeling natural. And so DeepGram have got lightning speed, over 90% accuracy, which is extremely unusual. Uh, in fact, very, very rare, if not unheard of. <laughs> uh, and you can also train it and customize it for your specific use cases as well. At a fraction of the cost of many of the other providers. Uh, and so if this is something that is interesting you, uh, and if you are looking for a speech-to-text provider for any project you're working on, whether it's voice bots, whether it's contact center automation, whether it's transcribing meetings, or whether or not you've got a business idea that you can use this technology uh, to build on top of, then check out deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. And if you are in the market for that right now, if you do reach out to the Deepgram team, they will even do you a side-by-side -side comparison with other speech-to-text vendors. That's how confident they are about the technology. So do check out deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. Thank you, Deepgram, for presenting VUX world. Uh, haven't had a sponsor for a while, so it feels nice to, to you know share the love and, and, and uh, spread the message. It's good. Uh, anyway, on with the show, on with today's show, we have got a fantastic guest lined up for you tonight. Uh, most of you who have uh, experienced uh, designing or building a conversation application, in fact, actually more importantly for those that maybe haven't yet, uh, you will need technology to do that inevitably. Uh, and providers of conversational technologies, uh, all of them have unique differentiation uh, points about them. And lots of them have very unique ways of approaching things. Uh, some of them have very industry specific tooling and technology and experience. Uh, and I'm delighted today to welcome onto the podcast, uh, the CEO of Hiro. If, you're, if you've been anywhere close to searching for conversational AI platforms, you'd have 
100% come across Hyro doing some absolutely fantastic work going from strength to strength uh, just raised a $10 million uh, Series A uh, quadrupled their revenue in the last uh, the last year I think it is and are doing absolutely amazing stuff so I cannot wait to dive into this conversation with Israel Crush on that note Israel welcome to VUX World Thank you so much Ken it's a pleasure being here no worries. I'm glad you can join us. I'm glad you can join us. We're just saying there. I feel as I say this every other podcast because we've had quite a few podcasts recently with companies founded in and based in Israel. And the, the thing that I always start with is that, and, and I'll get your thoughts on it as well, which is Israel is like a, a melting pot at the moment for conversational technologies, is it not? It is, it is. So I think that Israel is most known as uh, like startup nation and specifically like when you think about startup nation, the first thing that comes to mind is cyber. So a lot of cyber, amazing cyber companies came out of Israel and, and, and that's a lot because of our military service. So we have a mandatory service and specifically the intelligence units that drive amazing entrepreneurs based on the knowledge that they've gained from the army. Um, so I think cyber, it's, it's the first application that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but if you come to think about it, and if you think about intelligence, a lot of it has to do with uh, voice and with machine learning and uh, with the idea to be able to understand human language, filter it, extract it. Um, so I'm not surprised that now you see um, a lot of new companies like that are not focusing only on cyber, but also on the conversational AI. Mm, yeah, that's that's a, a good way of thinking of it. Actually, I never I never thought about that. Um, that is interesting. So so what's your what's your background then? But if you if 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 there is a you know, like a national service over there, presumably you you served some time. Did you come straight out of there straight into to Hiro, or did you do something before that? What what led you to to you know founding Hiro? Sure. So it's a, a bit of a long journey until uh, getting uh, to Hiro. So started my career at uh, one of the elite intelligence units called 8200. A lot of Israeli entrepreneurs come from this unit. Um, I was an intelligence officer dealing with big data, how to filter it and then extract it. Sorry, extract and then filter it to operational needs. Um, but my background is actually in computer science and statistics. So machine learning before it was actually called uh, machine learning um, and started working as a software engineer, engineer uh, at Intel. Uh, realized that uh, corporate life isn't the best fit for me. So jumped uh, to a bunch of startups doing everything from cybersecurity to ed tech um, in software engineering, then product management, and then some uh, leadership positions. In my last role, I was the head of product of a company called Zikit that was just acquired by Walmart uh, doing computer vision. Um, and then I uh, wanted something different uh, to expand my horizon. So um, I took my family um, to the U.S. Uh, to get my MBA, got it from Cornell University, uh, specifically Cornell Tech, which is a new campus in New York City, uh, a nice one. Uh, and that's where I would say the high road journey began. Um, that's where I met one of my co-founders, Rom. Rom did his master's in computer science at Cornell Tech, also comes from a machine learning background, um, not from the army, though. He was actually a combat uh, soldier in the army. Right. So he's the off one. Uh, but Rom uh, and I actually met in a machine learning class. Nothing related to the MBA, just something that I took because of my background. Um, what, was, what, and, what, was, what was your MBA? Um, sorry? What was your MBA? What, what did you study? Um, your, so I, your, not, 
So the you you went to do your MBA. What did you do your MBA in? Was that was oh. that computer science or? No, no, no. So it's business administrative. Like the focus there is around entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship. Ah, okay. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, yeah. Carry on. Sorry. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. Um, so, uh, you know, to Israel is that basically got to the States, uh, we got exposed to the voice space with the proliferation of Alexa and Google Home um, and all of these smart devices. And uh, it was very, very exciting. Uh, but almost immediately very disappointing. <laughs> so we felt that there's such a huge opportunity there and uh, we wanted to do so much with that. And so we, we dug deeper into that. And once we dug deeper, we realized that uh, for us at least, uh, what uh, interests us more is, is natural language and natural language understanding and how humans interact with uh, technology. And that might be via voice, but it can also be via text, chat, um, SMS-based um, so we went into this search around the natural language understanding problem. And that's when I contacted a friend of mine from the army, from 8200, um, Uri. Um, and Uri and I go uh, back for the past 17 years or so. Um, and this spent basically the last uh, 13 years of his life in this intersection between computer science and linguistics. So also a master's in computer science, but uh, took classes from the linguistics department and uh, created an expertise in computational linguistics and worked for Google, started working for Google, uh, worked there first for the search team, doing intent recognition, intent classification types of issues. And uh, then the Google duplex team, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, definitely, uh, yeah. So, wow. But for the ones who, who might not, that's the team that created this voice assistant that scheduled appointments for you with restaurants and hair salons. And they had like this amazing demo a couple of years ago. So he was uh, part of this team. And I somehow convinced him that what we're doing is more interesting. And he left Google and joined us as the third co-founder and CTO. Wow. So that's how we got to Hyro. Interesting. Interesting. That was, that was showing my US knowledge there uh, or lack thereof in terms of, uh, I, th- I thought I thought MBA was basically just like a general master's, but master's in business administration or whatever it sounds. Right. Yeah. Foreigners call it making babies in America. That's MBA. So that's good. That's good. So, so, so you're over there. You have you have some experience in using Alexa, Google Assistant. I'm just checking it doesn't go off. Um, um, and the experience there w- is particularly underwhelming. I think I think a lot of people probably found that in, in maybe 2018, 2017, something like that. Maybe because I think we've had this conversation on the podcast plenty of times before. Maybe it was a little bit oversold on behalf of those large companies and the reality of it. You know, day one, it's never going to be able to understand you know everything we say and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of, you know, using a, a voice assistant, which is a kind of general purpose thing for getting, playing music, setting time and stuff like that. Whereas Hyro, where it is today, is more kind of on the enterprise side, solving problems for customers and businesses. Where did the that application of this technology, how, how did you end up focusing over there? Because it would have been easy to say, oh, well, Alexa, I'm not very happy with that. Let's make a, another general purpose voice assistant and go down that route. How did you end up, you know, working in your likes of healthcare with governments and, and how did you end up on the enterprise side? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think that um, in general, uh, 
you talked about the Israeli ecosystem a bit. Um, Israel is much better at B2B, <laughs> rather than B2C. And, and I think it makes more sense. It, it makes more sense, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, thinking about, like, where can we find a problem that we are the ones who found this, or, or maybe from, from a few dozen of people who found this, this is, like, for the general population. Um, so what, um, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, Apple, compete on, uh, it, it's very, very hard. Like uh, the competition is fierce there, uh, being like this personal assistant, this gateway keeper for the voice world, if you like, um, with the ecosystems. Um, so I would say that my entrepreneurial mind um, took me um, to this route and figuring out like where I might be more successful at. And uh, that's what drove us to the B2B world. And then uh, we looked at a bunch of parameters um, to think about, you know, our frustration from the uh, from our own first experiences, and we we said that we wanted to uh, be able to understand the use cases in in what we called information heavy verticals, so full of information from various data sources. Uh, we want these enterprises to have some sort of an interaction with end users. Um, so that was the direction to whether we are going on the internal use cases route or the external facing use cases route. We wanted to make more impact. So we chose the external one. Uh, we wanted this interaction between end users and enterprise clients uh, to suck. So uh, for, for the enterprises to actually feel the pain mm. um, and not do it because it's nice to have and because uh, maybe at that time um, Alexa and Google were very hyped. Uh, but because they actually have a, a strong pain. It's not the innovation department that um, that uh, looks for this technology. And, and finally, and, and, and sorry for, you know, the use of the buzzword and the cliche, but uh, we looked for industries that are going some sort of a digital transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that played a key role for us finding healthcare as probably the perfect vertical to start um, at. Um, and the idea behind uh, looking for... Uh, these organizations is we don't want them to be too far behind and we didn't want them to be too advanced because like, let's say if we went to e-commerce, then uh, you're competing on increasing the fraction of a conversion and you're competing with, uh, with you know, with uh, technologies that might do, that might make your button uh, more green or less green and mm. that will convert more. So it's not necessarily about the experience. Um, mm. So that's how we found our sweet spot um, so to keep taking all of these parameters into consideration, uh, we found healthcare, um, again, as an amazing vertical to start at, pre-COVID. Yeah. Pre-COVID. Well, I bet you it amplified uh, during COVID. So you probably struck the, uh, struck the nail quite, quite ripely on the head there. Um, maybe we'll get into some of the use cases that came about because of COVID. But in terms of when you're starting out trying to pursue the healthcare vertical, um, we're noticing this now is that, you know, technology providers are starting to hone in on specific verticals. You could think of Casisto, Kai, focusing specifically on banking, you know, Hyro looking specifically at healthcare. Nuance actually has been zoning in on healthcare as well. Um, so this is obviously becoming more um, more common for, for these things to be focusing on, on a specific industry. However, the healthcare industry is very big and very complex 
multi multi channel with a million different use cases you know you could be working in a in a doctor's surgery helping a doctor be more productive or in a hospital helping a surgeon be more productive or on a phone line helping people book stuff or in a in a in a, in a chemist helping people get prescriptions it's so wide and vast it's ov- it's obviously that there's going to be value there for this kind of technology but how do you begin to approach a market like that when there is such vast potential where did you actually start in trying to get your foot through the door so to speak yeah absolutely so you start by asking a lot of questions and uh, <laughs> listening and listening to what they tell you um, so uh, we actually um, tried a couple of methods and um, at the end of the day what worked best for us is believe it or not called linkedin outreach and we did invested a lot of time and research and um, when we outreach these people, so really personalizing the message and not trying to sell, but actually trying to get an advice, uh, respecting the time of, of the person that uh, we're uh, requesting to speak with. And we actually got a couple of uh, very warm intros and calls with, with C-level executives and VPs in, in healthcare. Um, and, and then after speaking with a bunch of them about like, um, healthcare first, learning about this domain because it's a new domain to us. It's not that we're experts on this domain. Um, and now it played out like we've, we've, we've learned that specifically um, what's happening within the healthcare industry within the US is um, it's an industry that is going through a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So healthcare networks, buying smaller healthcare networks or like even uh, two similar size networks just get merged. And uh, that's because they're pa- fighting for patients. Um, another thing that we've learned that they, they don't call them patients anymore. So really? US citizens, yeah, healthcare networks call you customers. Really? Uh, or users. Well, it's all yes. I suppose, isn't it? You, have, you are a paying customer. You they are you... a paying customer. And, yeah. and that's like the trend of consumerism. And uh, uh, we said digital transformation, but um, we saw that there is a lot of demand in terms of how can I be- make a better patient journey or a customer journey. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. So, that, so create... they're adopting the, the kind of customer-centric practices now rather than what, you, what you're giving is what you get kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and you've asked about like where to start. So it, it seems like the, you know, they have a lot of operation. Like also um, we believe in um, find the least resistant path in mm go through there and then you can expand potentially to other other paths. So mm-hmm. that took us uh, to, to one route that um, is specifically around patient acquisition, or, or like I would say, really the door in the digital front door. And uh, so how can we help patients find information, navigate uh, the way throughout the website of uh, these networks um, and at the end of the day also schedule appointments schedule appointments with the relevant physicians to be found um, and they said on the website and and that's again like the shift we started with thinking about like voice but then we've realized that it's it's not for everyone it's not fully monetized yet some people do use call center some organizations do use um, obviously Alexa and Google Home uh, but a lot of people still prefer um, just checking out your website and then potentially chatting uh, with you. Um, so chatbot for a website that is able to um, help patients find a physician, uh, that's where we started. Um, and today I would say that's uh, the number one use case for us when we start engaging with a new healthcare network. 
Right. So when you began going out to to do this research and find this kind of place to start, did you have like because it sounds as though you found the right use case through having conversations, through identifying the needs that these companies have, then you presumably then built something to meet that use case or did you already have the beginnings of the technology built and you just had to apply it to a use case? Great question. So I think that uh, we took a very different approach from a tech perspective. And I think that uh, um, what made us the company that we are today. So we come from an angle of natural language understanding and not from an angle of healthcare or a vertical specific. Uh, we, as I said, like we didn't know, know anything about healthcare, uh, but uh, we, knew, we knew a thing or two about uh, natural language interfaces. And specifically what we knew that uh, the most solutions out there are using an intent-based architecture. So we talked about like, and I'm sure that the listeners here um, knows about intents and uh, what what is an intent and how it's being modeled and the classification and of intents and the use of machine learning to classify a specific user utterance to an intent. And, and we said in, in a sentence that this is not scalable that we find this approach not scalable. Mm-hmm. Why and is that? I, why okay, is that? and I can share why. <laughs> um, so the friction in the deployment and then the maintenance, the maintenance of the conversational AI system that are built on in, intents is impossible. And it's impossible if you have a lot of information and you have a lot of use cases and you're in a complex industry such as healthcare. If you're trying to do something that is very niche and, and and maybe a short dialogue of yes and no question, then sure, you can use intents. But if you come to um, a healthcare network and your patients may ask you about like 100 different things, it, it's not something that um, is, is really possible. Why? Because first you need to predefine the intents and, and that's basically like some sort of a guesstimations. Um, then you need to gather data um, like from the call center, for example, or from a chat history with representatives, then you need to tag this data, basically classifying each conversation to an intent. Then you need to train the machine learning models. Um, and finally, you have something that is working and you are deploying it after a few months, if not like even half a year or a year. And then you realize that your customers or patients are asking completely different things. And then you need to gather more data and tag more data. And the machine learning, as you know, is a black box. So it's really hard to improve the models because you don't work there. Um, and that's why in industries, in heavy industries, um, conversational AI systems that are based on intents don't really work. And I think that that um, was um, what we set out to change. Um, and specifically, maybe as a transition to what we do and how we think about it, um, so we don't want anyone to predefine the intents and we don't want you to give us data and then tag it and then train machine learning models. Instead, uh, we tap into your existing data sources and that may be your websites, uh, databases, APIs, CRMs, in healthcare, EMRs, electronic medical records, and uh, we scrape them to construct a knowledge graph. This knowledge graph is basically our own representation of the data. It's the same data, just structured differently. And we can query this knowledge graph using uh, linguistics methods via natural language. So we understand the connections between the different entities um, and the different properties of these entities. 
and being able to answer various questions without the need of defining intents. I know it sounds like very high level, so I'm happy to give a specific example uh, from healthcare. Yeah, yeah, go on then, because because I know that we had uh, we had Vlooper on the podcast recently. Who uh, I don't know if you're familiar with their technology. They have an intentless NLU, but we didn't really get to the topic of necessarily discussing knowledge graphs and how. Because I don't know if that's what they do. To be honest, uh, we didn't we didn't get into that. Um, so I'd be interested in yeah, if you can give us an example. But then I'd also be interested in getting into how you kind of go about pairing whatever that utterance is with which part of the knowledge graph and then how much manual effort there is or, or whatever in linking all that stuff together. Like, so yeah, maybe let's start with a working example and then we can, we can maybe get, get a bit deeper. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, let's say uh, you do want to help patients uh, find physicians and find the phys- finding a physician isn't the one intent. So you can find a physician based on speciality. That's one. You can find a physician based on insurance plan that they accept the two. The combination of these two is the third intent. And again, you have many more attributes uh, that uh, physicians have that you can filter by. Um, so saying something like, I'm looking for a cardiologist who speaks Spanish and accepts Ethna insurance in the Upper East Side. That's cardiologist who speaks Spanish and accepts Ethna insurance in the Upper East Side. Four attributes. Um, mm-hmm. So first you needed to anticipate that someone will look um, one time at these four attributes, uh, and then you need to be able to actually understand each and every of these attributes. So what would what you would see usually in an intent-based uh, modeling, um, even like if you're solely focused on healthcare, is that the virtual assistant would be able to, would, would focus around the specialty, because uh, usually filtering around specialty makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So it would give you just cardiologists, and they don't really care about like the language and et cetera and so on. Um, in the knowledge graph approach, what we do is when we get the user utterance, the knowledge graph and linguistics, it's, it's combined approach. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get the user utterance, you don't really try to match it to a specific intent um, because we don't have these types of intents. What you do is you break down the sentence, the, the user utterance, uh, you parse it for one of the... Uh, regular parsers, and uh, you understand the role of each word in a sentence, and you actually traverse the knowledge graph that you've built in advance to find these entities or to find the similarity to these entities. Uh, so cardiologist, for example, it's, a, it's actually a cardiology physician. So cardiology is an attribute of the entity physician, and we need to understand that cardiologist in the English language um, is again a physician who practices cardiology. Mm-hmm. Um, so you traverse this knowledge graph in order to retrieve the relevant answer or to retrieve a follow-up question. So if, for example, I would ask something like, I'm looking for a primary care physician or a PCP, um, I might get hundreds of different results. But in the knowledge graph approach, I'm also being able to tell you, listen, but if you filter based on insurance plan, you're going to cut uh, those by half at least. So the follow-up mm-hmm. question is generated automatically. So no one scripted really like what the virtual assistant will tell the user um, after the question. And no one is trying to um, really create these uh, dialogue flows or conversational flows in advance. What we really care about is getting access to knowledge and being able to understand the English language. Mm. And once we are able to do these uh, two things separately, we can just always change the knowledge 
and filter based on that. That's right. a bit of a high level, but I'm happy to yeah, get yeah. deeper into okay, it. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so we're not using intents, but you mentioned entities a few times there. You're still using entities then? Absolutely, absolutely. We are using entities, and sometimes for entity recognition, we do use machine learning, but it's for a specific sub-problem. So for example, understanding uh, whether the word Israel in the context of a sentence, um, are we talking about a person name or are we talking about a, a location, a country, uh, right. right? So, uh, and we have uh, examples like that, like Montana and other cities like in, in the state. So, and that's an actual problem. Okay, so that's interesting. So the 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 gap in the gap in my sort of knowledge, I suppose, is is probably on the knowledge graph side. I, I suppose I've got gaps everywhere, to be honest. Like, but the the what I'm thinking of is so you you compile a knowledge graph based on content from let's let's say a website. Let's say there's a, there's a there's a healthcare website, and on that website there's a big long list of all the physician names, the, the companies they work for, the locations and surgeries that they're at, the, lo- the insurance plans they accept, their skill sets and competencies like cardiologist or whatever, and all that exists on a website. You ingest that and build a knowledge graph out of that. You, when you do that knowledge graph, presumably you're then also labeling each bit of data. So the cardiologist name or the, the specialty is cardiologist and all the such and such is that. So you're kind of structuring that stuff separately from what's on the website. Is that right? Right. But, but, but the nice thing around here uh, is that you have a lot of reusability. So the only thing uh, incorrect in the description is that you don't have a long list, but you actually have web pages for each physician. For each physician, you have a web page and the web page um, has a similar structure. So actually, you need one time to label the structure, or you need to understand the structure. So the physician name is over here, and then the specialty is here, and then the subspecialities are there, and then the locations are there. Mm-hmm. And we have also tools to make it automatically. And, and once you understand that, uh, you scrape all of that, create this knowledge graph, and you get the different um, connections between the entities and the attributes that they have. Right. Okay, then. Um, and then the utterance side of things are you are you kind of without an intent that maps to something like uh, find physician or whatever without that are you then just kind of looking for the entities that are within a sentence and not necessarily caring a great deal about what the sentence is actually saying. You're just looking for the entities and then finding the entities in the content. Like how, is that how it works? I wonder if you can break down the, the linguistic so not, approach. N- not only, not, not only. So from a linguistics perspective, we look at the composition of a sentence. And when I said like understand the English language, we actually, what we're trying to do is model the entire English language. Um, and that's not like modeling a specific use case. So what, what, what it means by modeling the language itself is um, looking at how sentences work. And sentences basically are um, composed out of more sentences. It's a tree structure uh, way of looking at things. Um, and in the English world specifically, you'll see that there's different patterns and, and our, um, I would say, um, basic premise says that uh, there's a finite set of rules um, or patterns in the English language, in the composition of sentences that we can model. And once we model that, given knowledge, we're able to understand English. 
Um, so I'll give you one easy example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pattern from X to Y, or like if I'll say to you from Tel Aviv to, you'll probably complete in your head UK, right? Or the US, but mm-hmm. like you'll understand that from X to Y, if X is a location, Y is a location. If I would mm-hmm. say from AM to, you might say noon or, or midnight or whatever, but like from mm-hmm. X to Y, if X is a time entity, then Y is a time entity. You would never hear someone say from uh, London to 8 AM. Right, like that's that's not a pattern in the English language, um, and and if you think about like the entire English language, um, we say that there is a finite set of rules that we can model. Then we can uh, run some models to prioritize them, and then given the user utterance, we are searching for the different entities within the knowledge graph, but we're also looking at the sentence composition, and we're trying to understand which composition is better fit to the rules that we have in the patterns uh, that we've found so far, um, and, and then retrieve an answer that we feel is the best one. Right. Interesting. So essentially then you've got this big sort of like piece of knowledge, which is just modeled all of the English language. So it understands broadly speaking, the structure of sentences and therefore basically kind of like the meaning behind them, the entities that you're getting from the data help you fill in the blanks. And that really is the reason why you don't require any training data when launching one of these assistants. Is that right? Absolutely. And again, like we can, like my, uh, my co-founder and our CTO, Rui, um, says like it's a bit of like an algebra of, uh, of, uh, of linguistics. So like, uh, for example... That's going to blow my mind already because I don't know a terrible amount about linguistics and algebra, you know, adding and subtracting <laughs> letters is just totally alien to me. So <laughs> go on. How, 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 how is it like an algebra of linguistics? So seven, for example, is is an amount, and um, and week is a du- is a time unit, and seven uh, weeks or is is a duration of a sort. So like mm-hmm. if you compose seven and week, then or like and you might say seven uh, three days after tomorrow, right? So you can mm-hmm. actually compose this sentence in algebraic way to understand like what is the actual date and return the date. So when you think about like use cases around scheduling, that's how we think about it. And that's how we think about like modeling the language or like I can do tomorrow um, only between this and that um, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Interesting. So, so you started looking at healthcare then to go back to that kind of string. Um, you already had this concept of the way of, of creating this, or maybe it's already had this thing built whereby you're ingesting knowledge, you are uh, defining the per- correct entities that you're looking for, you've already modeled the English language and you can, you're able to put those two things together. Um, how then do you do the relationship between the relationship part between the knowledge? So for example, if someone says, I'm looking for a, <clears throat> a doctor, a likely follow-up, prompt to that would be well what's wrong with you you know are you, are you looking for a doctor that specializes in broken bones do you need something that's, that's like to do with your liver like what kind of doctor do you need and you mentioned earlier on that you that you are able to determine what other data is required for something to be completed i'm wondering if you can explain a bit about how that side of things works absolutely so um, 
as a virtual assistant, maybe that's a, a, a more um, basic thing that we have in mind. We really want to decouple between the dialogue management piece um, to the knowledge or the business logic. So mm-hmm. the virtual assistant needs to have, to have access to knowledge because he needs to be able to answer questions. But in terms of how he speaks, um, we don't really want to control it or interfere with it. Unless it's around business logic, which we think about as, as uh, knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. So to your question, when someone is looking for um, some sort of a doctor, um, if there isn't a specific business logic that was given to the virtual assistant, um, the virtual assistant will just look at the knowledge graph, will see all the entities that are doctors, and will figure out what is the shortest path to actually help you filter a catalog or a directory. In this case, it's a directory of physicians. And uh, probably like filtering based on speciality would, uh, would filter the most doctors. So it would ask you, what speciality are you looking for? And, and let's say you give him a specific speciality and you still have a lot of doctors, it will do this process all over again, looking at mm-hmm. the available doctors based on the criteria. And what is the next follow-up question based on uh, how can I help the user get to the least amount of uh, doctors as soon as possible? So that's one way to look at it. And right. just to complete it, sometimes organizations... Yes actually do have some business logic built into that uh, that is based on, you know, their, their, their own business. So, for example, um, if uh, you are a large network in a very uh, big state um, in the U.S., you might say, listen, it doesn't matter whether he's asking for a primary care physician or a cardiologist, you have to ask to, uh, the, the patient uh, where is he located what's his zip code or like where he's looking to get care. And that's because mm-hmm. like it's a very big state and they want to help you find the relevant ones. So in this case, um, to the knowledge of the physicians, we will add a business logic rule which, which, which prioritize location as the number one follow-up question. Um, it doesn't mean that like if you give it to, to the, to the virtual assistant without like uh, it needs to ask, it won't ask you again. It will get it. So we don't really care in what order we, we're getting the, the results. All we care is that we got the results based on the knowledge and the business logic. If you think about it, it's like a bit of the difference between declarative and approach uh, that mm-hmm. we're using to imperative. So... Uh, let, let's take a, a different mm. use cases, like for from travel, for example. Yeah. I can, uh, if you want to book a flight somewhere, I might want to ask you first, where are you flying from? Where are you flying to? Um, the date of the departure and the date of the arrival. These are four parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can I can either use the intent based uh, dialogue flow type of uh, approach, and then I can actually define different routes and say, I first I need your departure uh, location. That's what I need, and I'm not going to move forward until I get it. Mm-hmm. Or I can take like the more knowledge type of approach and saying, like, I don't care in which order I get these four parameters. I don't care if I get it in one utterance or like in three follow-up questions. And I don't care if I get it with four other parameters, such as preference for meals, business class, whatever, traveling with mm-hmm. kids and, and so on. But as long as I get these four parameters, 
then I will reply with an answer. So that's a bit of the difference between the declarative approach and the imperative approach. Right. Interesting. I love that correlative side though, which which I've never thought about. Um, I've never thought about it in that kind of way, which is the programming the system to basically act based on which parameter will filter the results better and just base it on that. Because ultimately that's all a conversation designer would be trying to do anyway, isn't it? They would just be trying to get the user to the narrowest set of results that, that is possible. It's a, it's a great question. So I think it depends on the company that you are trying to build. So we are trying <laughs> to build exactly this type of company. I can tell you yeah. that, you know, there, there are some uh, companies that are uh, looking, for example, or working a lot on the text-to-speech side to make it sound more human. We don't care about that. Like we say, listen, this is not a human. This is a virtual assistant. And, and it needs to help you to get to the goal that you're trying to get, whether it's finding information or completed transaction as fast as possible. Mm. So we're not working on text-to-speech all, for example. Right. Um, some companies would you know, really care about answering basic questions. So like um, if you'll ask the virtual assistant, how are you? How's the weather? They'll be able to actually conduct a conversation that is unrelated to the goal that maybe uh, for that you, the, the, the user called. We don't do that. Like if you'll ask the bot, how are you? So it has basic knowledge, you know, about uh, manners. So or about uh, basic English, like hi, hi, uh, thank you, you're welcome, uh, things like that. Uh, but, but if you'll ask about what's the weather, he wouldn't be able to answer you that. And we don't want him to be able to answer you that because mm-hmm. he's trying to help you fulfill the the reason that you started interacting with it from the get-go. Mm, that makes perfect sense. So a lot of what we've been talking about so far has been around the use case of finding information, uh, narrowing down a very big set of data to a specific result that matches a user need, all of which are jobs that all chatbots arguably try and do uh it sounds as though this approach does it particularly well though some use cases though as you've mentioned require users to complete tasks get stuff done uh and in order to do that you can't really do that just with data you'll need to have some kind of way of interfacing with a booking system for example in the in the case of booking an appointment with a doctor uh ticketing systems you know whatever it might be for whatever the use case is but there needs to be something that comes from a line of business system that will enable an action to be taken i'm wondering if you can just walk us through how you kind of integrate or approach integrating with those kind of core business systems in order to make these task completions possible yeah, absolutely. So first, I do believe that a lot of tasks can be completed without any type of integration. Um, or you know what? It's not necessarily correct, but there's a lot of information on the web and the ability to manipulate web, so to starting to get into RPA or conversational RPA without mm-hmm. the need for an integration. And I think that uh, we looked for this approach because a lot of the companies or the organizations that we work with, they don't have time. They don't have time not to predefine intents, nor to give us training data, or even provide APIs. Sometimes they don't even have the APIs. And that's why... A lot, we a lot of those old... Uh... Yeah, a lot of those old, uh, you know, re- records. So what they're called in 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 the in the US, the uh, e e PMR? Yeah. EMR. EMR. Yeah, a lot of those will be just on-premise old legacy systems that don't have any connectivity anyway, aren't they? Um, I, 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 
they are now again as I, as i mentioned going through some sort of a digital transformation yes yeah course, yeah so the 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 a bunch that are moving to this direction but um but but, but absolutely some don't and uh, but what they do have instead is they do have for example an internal system for the call center agent that needs to fill in some basic details like your first name last name uh, four digits of the ssn your birth date and Maybe um, what are you calling about, like what procedure you want to get, and then what's your insurance plan. And based on, on these parameters, just typing into a web-based form and um, reading you from the screen, like whether you're confirmed, approved or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and this entire process can be automated without an API. We just need access to the system. We can do, again, RPA on the web page and help them complete the form-filling transaction without even having to do with API. And the reason that we do that is, again, because um, the number one pain that we're trying to resolve for the enterprises that we work with is the friction in the deployment and the maintenance. Um, so that's one way. And, and regarding the, the others, um, you have to be very selective. So I think that the, the reason that um, healthcare is still... I would say our number one where we focus a lot on. Um, so go to market wise is about building a brand and building a value proposition um, around healthcare, uh, but also because of the integrations. So we, for example, did pick the number one EMR that is being used by uh, this large healthcare networks and we've integrated with it. So to be able to, again, give a, a plug and play type of um, deployment to our customers. But you need to choose to, to do it uh, wisely because um, integrations costs, you know, it mm. costs time mostly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting that, that you've um, married together that conversational AI front end with the RPA back end. And I think maybe there's probably a, arguably a whole episode in, in that itself really, because <laughs> <clears throat> it's not something that, We've we've spoke about it quite a bit actually on the podcast and referenced it a lot, but haven't actually seen that many deployments of it. Um, so it's it's kind of like the 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 ideal situation in in some situations where those APIs or whatever don't exist, um, but haven't really seen a huge amount of of that being deployed. Like so, I don't know whether we'll have time to get into into. Maybe we'll come back to that if we have time towards the end in terms of how you approach that. That'll be that'll be a, a very interesting conversation. But while we're on the topic of the whole kind of the deployment and, and maintenance side of things. Um, I think I understand hundred percent how the, the, uh, the value as far as the deployment is concerned, because it sounds as though it's a super relatively straightforward process. You ingest data, a lot of it, the heavy lifting is done on your side. The client doesn't require, you know, conversation design, technical expertise, all that kind of stuff. So I think the deployment side of things makes perfect sense. What about the maintenance side of things? What is the life cycle like using the Hyro product or technology like? Because with the typical deployments, as you mentioned, you launch it, you figure out that a bunch of people are saying stuff that you didn't anticipate. There's retraining. They say stuff that you weren't expecting again. There's new use cases added. And it's kind of like a, a whole cycle that continues on. What's, it, what, it, what's involved in, in maintaining an assistant that is launched with Hyro? Yeah, so um, I would say that, um, again, the basic assumption that we have is that data isn't static. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing. 
Hence, um, if um, you deploy conversational AI assistance, um, the, the data will change. And if, for example, you are marrying between like the dialogue management to, um, to the knowledge or to the data, then you will constantly need to change it and maintain it. Um, and while there are a lot of examples to it, um, you know, 2020 and 2021 brought the best example, which is COVID-19. Mm. So, and especially like within our uh, industry. Uh, so what we saw around COVID-19 is one, there's a new disease, a new pandemic in the world. People are starting to ask about it. Um, so let's say um, you use Dairo to deploy, find a physician use case, and no one now really wants to find a physician. All they want is information about this new pandemic. Now, what do you do? Um, I'll tell you what we did. Um, you know what, before that, maybe I'll make the story more interesting. Yeah. Um, so first it's it was like interesting enough, about, but yeah. <laughs> no, but, but because first it's questions about what is COVID-19? How can I get mm. infected? How can I protect myself? I've traveled in the past 14 days. You remember this? The 14 days period? Yeah, yeah. Uh, type of questions. And then, you know, a couple of months down the line, people are asking about antibody testing. And they're mm. asking about some side effects such as COVID toes. It's a thing. Mm. People ask about it. COVID and, what? And then COVID toes. Toes? Yeah. As in the things yeah. at the end of your feet? Yeah. It's, it's a thing. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> COVID people toes. ask about it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I've never heard of that before. And, and then um, a couple months down the line, people are asking about vaccines. And mm. uh, how can I get a vaccine? And how can I schedule a vaccine? And what's the difference between Pfizer and Moderna? And now they're asking about booster shots. Mm, um, interesting. And, and, and what we did, um, again, so how, how, do you, how do you maintain your conversational AI system? Like, so option one is you hire an army of content curators <laughs> that will constantly add questions and modify the answers. And you're looking at a bunch of different um, resources and you are training, retraining the machine learning models to classify the intent and to be able to give the relevant answer. Or option number two, you tap into existing data source. In this case, it's not of our customers because they didn't have this, but the CDC, uh, the CDC has, has it. Um, the CDC for uh, the non-US uh, listeners is the Centers for Diseases Control and Prevention. That's the most certified, I would say, uh, um, entity in the US to give answers about uh, things like COVID-19. So they have a very elaborative FAQ that is constantly changing, has constantly changed, and we scraped it and we've added it to our knowledge graph. So uh, we said yeah. that the knowledge graph is being built on top of the customer data, which is true, but what we didn't say is that you can enrich this knowledge by taking knowledge from various data sources, even external data sources. So the CDC is, is one, the WHO, the World Health Organization is another, Wikipedia, is, is another healthcare-related uh, uh, knowledge uh, from Wikipedia. So around the maintenance, basically, uh, we've offered a free COVID-19 virtual assistant that was able to answer frequent questions about COVID-19 and that came already built in with certified information from the CDC and constantly kept updating with the new information without our customers needing to change anything or work hard for the virtual assistant. Wow. That is, uh, that's quite clever, that 
ingesting the actual source of truth because that was that was the problem with a lot of these things that was happening and the same thing happened i don't know if you remember or if, you, if you've seen that the amazon and google both pulled a lot of skills and actions that were covid related because they, they couldn't trust the source they were coming from and all that kind of stuff and a, a whole bunch of people i know of a couple of companies actually who went through the process that you've kind of just outlined which is just throwing bodies at it to populate faqs and, and stuff like that to try and get something out there retraining a whole bunch of models and stuff like that then you've got conflicts between models because some questions might be very similar and you've got a whole kind of like intent conflicts and stuff like that so that is a very interesting way of approaching it so what did you do you just basically once you'd built it you just kind of went to your existing customers and just inserted it as part of their current high raw implementation exactly and and again like so at first like they just got the free answers from the cdc then they started creating their own page of information about covid19 then I said, you know what? We want this information also in the in the knowledge graph. No problem. You get it. And then, like, it's a matter of prioritizing knowledge. So if there's an answer in our data, for example, if you're, uh, you know, also, if you're in New York City, you might have uh, specific um, policies um, or how you treat COVID, et cetera, which are very different than from Minnesota. Mm. Um, right, so you first um, you, you first try to get an answer from the customer knowledge. Then, if you don't get an answer from the customer knowledge, you go to the CDC. And if you don't get an answer from the CDC, you can either go to another external resource or just say, you know, I don't have this information. And we didn't talk about it, but a lot of I would say our losses because virtual assistants are never perfect, uh, and you can break them very easily. But a lot of our uh, losses comes from missing knowledge gaps. So right. the, the assistant understands that it doesn't have the knowledge and it flags it and actually can classify and segment and give you an aggregation of uh, people are asking about the booster shot. I don't have information or I don't have knowledge about the booster shot. So either give me like some sort of a response that you want me to present back or give me a knowledge source that I can ingest to the knowledge graph to be able to talk smartly about the booster. Wow. So that's a big part of the value proposition as well when thinking mm. about like, it's not only maintenance, but it's actually improving the virtual assistance in a relatively plug and play manner. Mm, yeah, rather than spending all your days trawling through transcripts, trying to figure exactly. out what's going on. <laughs> Which is, again, not scalable. Yeah, interesting. I love that approach. That is, that is yeah, that is very, very interesting. And so obviously all of that kind of work throughout this period of time has led to, maybe we should have mentioned this at the beginning. I should have actually said this in the intro. Uh, maybe I'll have to do a bit of editing, but you ended up winning the Microsoft startup of the year award. Recently. Yes, yes. Yes. Was that for the COVID uh, work? I COVID definitely affected it. Absolutely. Right. Because, you know, Microsoft is working. I can tell you it was, uh, we won it over uh, 4,400 different applicants and wow. startups. Amazing wow. startups, startups that are more established than us. So I would say that uh, the fact that we were able to offer our small support, but like uh, to these healthcare networks and doing it for free and doing it in, in a very fast paced manner, in a very, you know, zero type of lifting manner, that's definitely helped us win the award. And besides that, as you mentioned, like, uh, Microsoft is big on healthcare. Mm. Uh, they just acquired Nuance, and uh, um, we are a Microsoft partner, and we are uh, thinking about how can we 
um, go to market together and leverage this very big, you know, mm-hmm. uh, company uh, to push us forward. So I think it's COVID definitely had an effect, but also I would say our relationship and our ability to bring them value and our ability to have a fruitful dialogue with them also helped. Mm. Yeah, and and the the you've got some very unique approaches in terms of how you're going about it. Um, again, as I mentioned, I've I've come across companies who are who are using intentless based NLUs, uh, other companies who do decent work with knowledge graphs, but don't quite connect the two together always, especially not in a point in a way that that will allow a, a ongoing conversation. And is able to do that thing you were talking about in terms of understanding the relationships between different types of data and the knowledge graph and all that kind of stuff. Um, and also specifically looking at, at making the healthcare experience better as well. So I think you've got a, a definitely a unique uh, approach and I think it's it's absolutely fantastic. What, what is like, what's the process of somebody onboarding Hyro? Like if someone was wanting to use it, it sounds to me just as an outsider listening to all of this stuff that's going on, it doesn't sound as though it's a, a massive heavy lift, but it sounds as though there's a bit of work to be done on your side. It doesn't sound like a totally self-service based solution. I wonder if you can just talk us through, maybe I'm making assumptions there. I wonder if you could talk us through the, the onboarding process if someone wanted to, to use uh, no, absolutely. So today we are working with large enterprise customers. As I mentioned, like for smaller use cases, you might not need our solution. You might be able to do it with Intent or with an open source dialogue flow, whatever. Um, so currently we are selling only to enterprises. Um, the, it, it is um, almost zero effort um, on their behalf. We actually come to a sales meeting with a demo ready. Uh, so we scrape the website and we construct the knowledge graph and we show them the chatbot on the website without them needing to do anything with their data, which is uh, pretty helpful in, in the... Do you, do, you also, do you also walk in with a blank check? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've, done, we've, done, we've done the work for you. All you need to do is sign here. We try, we try. No, that's a good one. Uh, we, we'll try that. Um, but yeah, uh, like that's what we're doing. We are demonstrating like the real, really the number one differentiator, which is around the plug and play, the zero efforts in in on their behalf, because they have they have the money, they just don't have the time um, or the people to put on it. Um, so um, and then once we go live, we have a soft launch process. Um, so we gradually expose the bot. Again, everything is managed on our, on our end. Our customers do have a dashboard, a platform that they can use to control various things, mostly around the knowledge. We are planning to make it much more self-serve and go a bit down market. Again, still not to a place where you can just go on our website and create it by yourself, but definitely to a place where like, if you sign, sign up, then you get a platform and, and you can try to play with it. And this platform... And like other platforms, they don't give you uh, the ability to create uh, intents or, or, or the, the conversational flows, but they give you the ability to ingest knowledge and um, see whether the bot can answer the results or not. And again, flag some uh, gaps in knowledge that they don't get. So still maintaining this plug and play approach, but just giving you more control and uh, making it more self-serve. But we're still not there. We will get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it doesn't sound like a, it's a, you know it's all a journey, and to make something that 
that lease seems to be incredibly powerful, also incredibly accessible, uh, is obviously going to be a big task. But I think that you're right. The, the larger enterprises have got deeper pockets and also likely to pay for something, pay more for something that saves them that time. If you can get live in, I mean, some some deployments, you know, uh, take months and months and months just to focus on a, a very small number of use cases. Fair enough, high value use cases, but Still, a lot of complexity involved, a lot of people involved, uh, a lot of expense involved, and a lot of time involved. And if you can slim all of that stuff down, um, then it's something that is arguably worth more, isn't it, really, if you can do it quicker? And, and I can tell you that while every other solution, you know, claims, the claim to fame is we have the, be- the best natural language understanding engine, and we have the best quality, and the least error rate, we say all of that, right? But like as everyone else. But, but but what we say also is, and you can you can check for yourself. We can give you something that is working without you needing to put the effort, and it's very tangible. And just try us out. And mm. I think that that's really like the the plug and play approach here uh, mm. works for us uh, really well. Definitely. Nice one. Well, if someone did want to try that, if there's some healthcare providers listening, if there's some people there who are working within large enterprises looking to explore ways that they can improve their customer experience and do so in a way that doesn't require them to do a whole lot of heavy lifting, what's the best way for them to, to either reach out or to, to experience Hyro or to, to start that journey? Yeah, absolutely. So first they can go to our website. It's hyro.ai, H-Y-R-O.ai. And request a demo, look at the materials. We write a lot, we publish a lot, we show a lot of case studies. And by the way, we talked mostly about healthcare because this is the beach at Vertical, but uh, definitely also um, other folks from information-heavy industries that are going through some sort of a digital transformation phase. So banking, insurance, uh, real estate, uh, you name it, uh, feel free to do so as well. And, you know, because you're a listener of this podcast, just feel free to email me. It's a very, uh, it's a very basic email. You can guess it, israel at hyro.ai. So it's I-S-R-A-E-L at hyro.ai. And I'm happy to facilitate this conversation as fast as possible. Fantastic. I'll stick that on there as well. Wicked. Well, Israel, this has been absolutely Fantastic. I, I genuinely have enjoyed, as I said, I've come across pieces of technology here and there that do little elements of things here and there, but all this put together is a totally unique approach. And I think that also focusing on those information-rich organizations, I see also you've got government on your website as well. Um that's the hardest part of these chatbot deployments. Many people think that we'll launch a chatbot and we'll just get started really simply by uh, just doing something that's like an FAQ thing. But arguably the FAQ thing is one of the hardest things to do because it's so broad that, especially as you mentioned, with an intent-based structure, there's so many conflicts. There's so much heavy lifting that needs to be done. And then also people sometimes don't always just want questions answered. They're in the middle of a journey. And so you need to be able to understand what comes after that question and how that fits into the experience and how it takes them on. And so the, the, when people think, I'm just going to start with a simple FAQ chatbot, it's very rarely the case. And most of those chatbots end up being absolutely terrible. Um, and so I think that the focus on that information-rich uh, kind of type of organization plus the approach to the actual technology itself in terms of doing away with intents, which seems to be the bottleneck in some of this stuff, and also the speed at which you're able to do it 
I think is absolutely unique. And so there's no surprise to me that, that, you know, you're winning startup of the year and all this kind of stuff, because I think it's, <laughs> it, it sounds to me to be absolutely fantastic. So I really, really, really genuinely appreciate your time, uh, Israel. And uh, yeah, wish, wish you all the best. And thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you, Ken. And again, like this is my job. I love talking about what I do. So thank you for hosting me and uh, letting us uh, tell a bit about ourselves as well. Cool, nice one, and thank you all for listening as well. Uh, next week, we've got uh, we've got a number of episodes. I think probably I think we might be doubling up again next week. I need to really get a get a bit of a break <laughs> at some point. But we will be speaking to QBox, which is interesting because uh, I believe QBox is automating things. We've been talking about intense and training data and stuff like that. I think QBox have got a solution which helps automate some of that training data. Uh, capture and and provision, I believe, and so we'll get into that conversation next week, uh, and many others over the next over the next month. Uh, so thank you all for listening uh, and for tuning in, and we'll speak to you again very soon. Until next time, see you later.